Thank you so much for getting up early, coming, celebrating the Lord with us this morning. We'd like to, to bless you and thank you for being here by giving you a little gift. So if this is your first visit to Lakeview, would you mind standing up for a quick moment so these ladies can find you and the rest of us will be saying thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks very much. One more announcement, joining the club of joy and laughter in having children. It's Mr. David and Lauren Widener. Where are those guys this morning? Did you hear this first service? No, I, I have missed them about two or three times on a Sunday to announce that they're having a children. Now I announce that they're not here. So want to please tell David and Lauren congratulations that they are expecting, and we are quite excited for that news as well. All right. Do we have a, can we, somebody flip up that presentation for me that goes with this morning? There we go. No, that's, that's not like misspelled words up there. That's Latin for all you guys who skipped foreign language classes. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue in our series that we are studying on restoration in the church and important issues along the way that we need to understand and grasp about God's bringing a work of restoration. And another word that's used in church history about restoration would be the word reformation. Uh, the most famous of reformations took place in the 16th century that you and I are living in the good of a few individuals who got a sense that the church had drifted off course from what the Bible was teaching and emphasizing. And they believed it so strongly that they were willing to put their lives, literally put their lives on the line in order to see a restoration of biblical truth. And what they did began a, a tidal wave of activity that extends all the way to us today. And when you look back through church history, uh, this was a phrase that came out of the Reformation of the 16th century. Semper reformanda. It meant always reforming. And so what they began to recognize through the years of bringing reformation to the church was that the church was always in need of reformation. And if we understand the doctrine of sin that dwells in us, it shouldn't surprise any of us that when we write the course into a biblical pattern in whatever area of our life, whether it's uh, in, in being saved and walking for the purpose of God in how we are a husband or a wife or whatever role we're called to play, at some point, sin and the effect of living in a fallen world is going to blow us off course. And we're going to have to, simple reformanda, always be reforming. Now, that's one of the things we put a great deal of emphasis here, and I think rightly so, upon God's work of sanctification in our lives. It's an ongoing, never-ending work. When you and I move from the realm of being justified into being sanctified, which is an ongoing work until the day that we are fully glorified. And then, at that moment, it's just enjoying God from the rest of eternity. But until that time, you and I are always undergoing reformation. We're always undergoing growth and change. 
And this morning, I need to talk about some issues of growth and change that the Lord wants to bring to us as a church that affects some of the practices that we are about, a very primary, important practice to us. But I want to walk you through a couple of snapshots from the family album in the book of Acts. So I'm not actually going to turn and study these passages for the sake of time, but if you pay attention in the book of Acts, you immediately see... Reformation taking place there. It didn't take 16 centuries for the church to realize, ah, we need to change some things. We need some reformation. They knew that within about 16 weeks that we're going to need to change some things. And, you know, when the first passage you come to in Acts chapter six, I'm not quite sure exactly how long it is, but 16 weeks would be a pretty good guess. From the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit has come and there's been a giant move of God in Jerusalem and thousands of people have been saved and all of a sudden there's more people that have needs than they've ever had around them before. And they're all locked into Jerusalem and they're trying to follow the disciples and follow the apostolic leaders that are in the church at that time. And something has to change. And you understand, remember this, this, this birth of a church began in Jerusalem with a little 120 people gathered in the upper room waiting for what God said was the promise. So there's 120 folks gathered. The apostles are gathered there with them. And you can imagine, you know, we're a church a lot bigger than 120. Imagine there's 12 apostles and there's 120 people there. Now think for a moment what that relational dynamic looked like. At any moment, you need, you need to meet with one of the apostles? Not a problem. Peter, James, John, Matthew, just pick one. You know, guys, walk with Jesus, anointed by the Spirit of God, gifted in amazing ways. And you can meet with them in a moment. And 16 weeks later... The whole church has been turned upside down. There's thousands of people who are now clamoring for attention. How do I walk this out? What does this mean for my life? Uh, You mean the Old Testament really was pointing all to this? All that we understood before was about this? Uh, uh, That's clear to me, but this is not clear. And then there's all kinds of needs that take place in their life. And immediately the church realizes we're going to need to reform the way we do leadership. And when you get to Acts chapter 6, you get the the first good gripe session going on in the church. I I love realistic pictures from the Bible. Uh, You know, if you're flipping through the family photo album, when you get to Acts chapter 6, the the faces have frowns on them. (laughs) These are people who are complaining because there's a need in their life that the church, that they expected the church was going to meet this need. I mean, listen to all that's being preached and taught and lived. And yet we're being overlooked. And... And, you know, in a world that's charged in this time frame, a world that is charged with prejudice, with the view that one people group is superior to another one, and that mixed people groups have a certain view of folks in the society around them, and all of a sudden you've got this melting pot thing happening, people coming into the body of Christ. You have a real potential problem here of some people being left out And not just being a matter of them all being understanding, well, you know, we know you went from 120 to 12,000 here just like that. And so we understand you can't get to us. No, no, no. We don't understand because we're these kind of people. And there's probably a motive why you can't get to us. So there's problems beginning to kick in here. And they begin to reform the leadership. And they realize in that moment, you know, uh, the apostolic folks who are gifted, Ephesians 4.11 type gifts, that they're needed to direct the church, to preach to the church, to find the vision of God and care for the people by directing the church that way. But they were having to neglect that role in order to wait tables and serve food to those who were in need. 
And so Reformation comes and they, they invent, if you will, the, the deacon ministry where they're going to raise up other leaders, godly men, who are now going to care for other folks as this enterprise expands. Now, think for a moment, because Reformation, it has by its very nature the fact that things are going to change. And for these guys, if you were in the church when it was 120, things are about to change. And when you could meet with Peter or James or John in an instant, now you got some guy named Stephen, some guy named Philip. Who are you guys? I mean, I've been walking with Peter for years. And now I'm going to have to relate to, to you. I don't, even, I don't really know you that well. I, mean, I'm not, I don't know if I'm comfortable opening my life up to you. But there was a reformation in leadership that had to take place. And so the, the, the church never goes far without realizing we're going to need to touch some things. We're going to need to change some things. When you get to Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 10 is a radical reformation. It's, it's God about to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, you and I are Gentiles. We read the gospel from a Gentile perspective. This is a major deal that's about to take place. So much so that Peter is going to have to be convinced to cooperate. Peter is sitting on a rooftop in the afternoon. He begins to, to get a vision of a sheep being lowered from heaven. This is the extent God had to go to to convince this man, take the good news, the gospel of my son coming and dying, and take it to the Gentiles. Well, couldn't he just tell Peter that? Hey, Peter, I kind of would like for you to... Take this to the Gentiles. It's great news. Take it to the Gentiles. No, he's going to need a vision. He's going to have the sheet lowered. The voice of God's going to tell him, uh, you remember, there's, there's animals on this sheet that are lowered. And there's a picture here being taught to Peter. And a voice from heaven. Right? This, is, this is, of course, Peter struggles with immediate obedience. He's, you know, reminds me of my children sometimes. There's this difficulty just to take the words that are said and act upon them. There's always a question that comes back. Peter's that way. God says, arise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, you know, a voice from heaven, you think a voice from heaven tells me that I'm loading my gun and I'm going. Not Peter. No, no, Lord. Not me. I, I can't possibly eat anything unclean. Right? This is the same Peter that when Jesus goes to wash his feet, he's like, no, no, Lord. You, no, not you wash my feet. Peter's always in the way. So God's got to deal with Peter. But this is a major thing for him. Because what God's trying to convince him is that the gospel is for the Gentiles. Now, remember, when he goes to Cornelius' house and he begins to preach, and, and when they come in, the family bows down to Peter. Peter has to tell him, I'm, I'm just a man like you. And he begins to preach to them, and he, and he highlights, because they must know, this guy is a Jew, and he's with us, preaching to us. Relating to us. He must pick up on this because when you read Acts chapter 10, he begins to explain. Now, I know this is weird. <laughs> he kind of just comes right out and tells them. I know that we don't have any dealings with people of another nation. We, I know that. But God has shown me. And then he has to go, Acts chapter 11, he's got to go to Jerusalem and defend what he's done. He obeys God and the other leaders in Jerusalem find out about it. And there's a, there's a big problem going on here. Did you hear that Peter... Went into a centurion's home and spent time with them and began to share things with them. Did you hear this? What? It's a scandal that's broken out. And you wonder, why don't these guys get this? Well, I'll give them a little bit of grace here on this one. When they've been around Jesus, Jesus' ministry was to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Remember the Syrophoenician woman who comes to Jesus. She has a need that her child would be healed. And she calls out the disciples, shoo her away, go away. 
She won't go away. She comes back to Jesus. She asks Jesus that he would meet the need in her child's life. Jesus shoes her away by telling her this. I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she says, yes, Lord, but, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the table. I, I think Jesus along his way stopped. Turn like, wow, <laughs> now that's faith. And he blesses her as a result. But they had heard this. And then when Jesus sent them out, Matthew chapter 10, he sends them out, takes a 70 and sends them out. They go out with the instruction to only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is what they've heard. So you can see where they begin to get the idea that the gospel's for the Jews. And so even in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that you're going to be clothed with power from on high. You're going to be my witnesses in, in Jerusalem, Samaria, and Judea, the uttermost parts of the world. Well, wouldn't you think that would mean the Gentiles? Not necessarily, because Jews were dispersed all over the world. They could have thought we're still going to all the Jews dispersed all over the world. So this was a major deal that God has to come in and, and reform the church and tell them, listen, the gospel is for the Gentile as well. It's not just for the Jew. And this is an amazing scandal that they have to hear about. Now, if you put yourself in their shoes, the feelings that a Gentile and a Jew would have about each other you know, for you and I have a real clean feeling about that because we weren't part of it. Uh, let me give you a flavoring for it. Sprinkle some of this into this relationship. How black and white relationships are in the south, in the city of New Orleans. Sprinkle some of that in. Sprinkle in some religious zeal that you would find between Muslims and Jews. Mix that into this pot. And now you have a sense of what's occurring that God's coming in and saying, you know what, we're going to change that. Uh, that needs to be corrected. The gospel is to go to the Gentile. Now you can imagine being on the receiving end of that if you're a Jew who all of a sudden realizes the implications of that. <sighs> Wait a minute. That means those people are going to be in my church. I mean, come on, we're a very homogenous group here. There's not a lot of those people here. And every one of us have a category for whatever those people are. Now, we might could deal with the idea that those people are going to be in a big, large gathering. But, but what happens when those people are going to be in your covenant group? With all of their needs, with all of their different way of looking at life, with all of the edges on them that just happen to rub you the wrong way, and you just happen to have all the edges that do that to them, too. And now you're in small groups together. Oh, man, whose idea was that? Now listen, you know, I can, I'll, I'll be semi-polite here this morning. But I know people come in to the body of Christ. And you come in with baggage. Prejudice is a baggage that you come in with. And for you or I to look at people through the eyes of their skin color or place or station in society is ungodly. And yet I know that there are many folks deep-rooted in your heart, if you grew up in this area, was particular feelings. Whether you are white or black, there's a particular hostility that goes back and forth on that line. And, and you know, I said this last week a little bit dealing with the issue of politics. 
The same way we want the world and the world's media defining for us what issues really matter, we don't want our culture defining for us how we view people either. But yet it's inescapable that they already have. They beat us to the punch on that one. And so this needs to get undone in us. There needs to be a change in us and how we view people and how our heart goes toward them or resists them. Based on what? Well, we need to base it on the word of God. And there needs to be reformation in the church today on that. But now this is not about racial re uh, restoration, although it would be a worthy message. One more reformation of the practice of the church. Last point I put in your little intro there. Galatians 2 verse 9. <clears throat> Paul speaking says, recognizing the grace that had been given to me. This is when he goes to Jerusalem, begins to meet with the apostles who were there. Recognizing the grace that had been given to me. James and Cephas, or Peter, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So here, Peter gets a revelation about ministering to the Gentile world. Sheet lowered, ministers to the house of Cornelius, goes back to Jerusalem, explains what God's doing. But yet there comes a time later on, and this is years later, when Paul, Paul gets saved. And the mandate God places upon Paul is that Paul should be the guy to command the gospel going to the Gentiles. So there's a, there's a bit of a strategy shift here. See, Semper Reformanda, when you read through the book of Acts, there's always God updating. Here's what I'm doing. Here's what I'm doing now. Here's what you guys need to walk in. So I don't know what changes this meant for some of these guys in terms of what they were ministering, how they were ministering. But they begin to know Paul's the guy to take the lead on this. And we're to take the lead in this direction. And the Spirit of God points that out. Now, sometimes when we look in the Bible, we find reformation or work of restoration that is corrective in nature. And sometimes we find that it is strategic in nature. It's simply God updating us on what he's doing and for the church to stay in step strategies need to be adjusted for what god's doing sometimes it's corrective sometimes it's god saying you're doing the wrong thing you can't continue to do that ministry that way you can't continue to believe that way but what i want to look at today is somewhat corrective i think but i think it's also very strategic as well and that word strategic fits in well with what we began this series understanding is is the church a cruise ship, or is it a battleship? See, there, there's no strategy when the church just becomes a place where you get on board, it's not going anywhere, it's going to just set sail, it's a pleasure cruise, the whole thing is designed to treat you like you're a guest and a customer. And, you know, somebody wearing a goofy little white suit is going to come along and try to put a pillow underneath your feet while you stare out at the, at the ocean and suck in some sun. While the ship doesn't go anywhere. Right. I mean, it, st it starts here, it goes in a big circle, it comes back to here. It wasn't intended to accomplish anything except to serve you along the way. But that's a whole lot different than a battleship. You, know, you sit down on the, on the deck of a battleship and pick your feet up and expect the guy in the white suit to come put a pillow underneath your feet. He's going to throw you in the stockade. The guy wearing the white suit's the captain. <laughs> and you're on that ship for a whole different reason. You're there with a mission in mind. And that mission's going to get updated, right? You know, the, you've seen enough war movies. 
you know that there's going to get a call in and there's going to be something that that, that ship's got to answer a call. And they were on this course. The scenery was wonderful. But now they're about to chart a course to go right into hostile activity. And strategy has changed. Now, listen, listen, this is the church. This is a description of the church. Now, what I'm going to talk about in the next two weeks, this week and next week, has to do with restoring biblical fellowship. And this is a much needed work of restoration. Because I do think, again, the same way that, that prejudice sneaks into our hearts and hides in the shadows, and as much as we want to say, well, you know what? I relate to people because of they're in Christ. It doesn't matter what color their skin is. But you know, there's a little bit of a remnant of that stuff in you that you still have to conquer and master. Well, you know, some of that stuff is in us in all kinds of categories. And we come into the church with the idea that people are in our life for a particular reason. And usually, you can tell, you can tell, you start thinking about this, and I'll probably hit on this more next week, but... You can start telling why and how people are supposed to be in your life as to what hurts your feelings. What are you thinking about when you think about other people? What kind of expectations, what kind of wishes do you have for them? Who do you want to be around? Who are you displeased if you can't be around, but you can, you, you can be around these guys, but who wants to be? You want to be around these guys. You start realizing people are in your life usually... To serve me. Well, that's a, that's a custom. Welcome to the cruise ship. So when you come to the church, you come in thinking, okay, this is a big group of people that are here for me today. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, if they don't all interact with me in a certain way, well, they really haven't been the church to me now, have they? Uh, well, that would be a cruise ship mentality. And yet God wants us to have fellowship, but we need some radical restoration of what biblical fellowship really is. I put some questions in your outline. be good for maybe some covenant group discussion. Is fellowship for you a battleship word or a cruise ship word? How do you approach the relational dynamic of the church? Who are going to be the church people in your life? Who's that going to be? Who are you pursuing right now? And, and, and here's a critical question. And why are you pursuing them? If I walked around this auditorium right now, put a microphone in everybody's face and said, who in the church are you pursuing? Who are you pursuing? Who are you pursuing? Now you realize pursuing is different than attending a meeting, isn't it? Pursuing implies a lot about how I'm relating to that person, how I engage that person. What my thoughts are towards that person. If I'm pursuing them, and if I'm pursuing them for the purpose of biblical fellowship, that's going to frame a lot about why I'm pursuing them. Versus wanting to get them to pursue me, which is what our culture teaches us to do. Have you stopped to consider that by God's design, people are strategically in your life? People aren't an accident. Even those people with those kind of lives and... That stuff that ah, just rubs me the wrong way. People are strategically in your life. I believe that's true from the moment, moment you come into this world. Strategically, God has set people in your life. Whether it's your parents, your family, the geography you grew up in, the relationships that have been established, friends, uh, extended family members, the local church you're a part of. People are strategically in your life. Look, to, look at Hebrews chapter 3 with me. 
I'm going to show you why it's so critical that we understand something about fellowship. And I'm just going to quickly touch on this scripture. I may develop it further next week. So if you want to chew on it this week, it may uh, benefit some of our time together next week. And, and you'll get lots of benefit out of it, even if I go somewhere else in a different passage next week. Hebrews chapter 3. This passage is a, is a warning passage with a solution hidden in it. So anytime the Bible warns us about things, unless we're arrogant, we, sh- we should pay careful attention to it. Unless we think that, well, the warnings are for everybody else. Warnings aren't for me. I mean, I'm, I'm the ultimate Christian. I'm super Keith. I don't need to be warned. I'm going to walk on with God no matter what happens. Bring it on, brother. I mean, I, me and God are tight. Man, you don't know my story. I don't need to know your story. You know what I know? I know sin dwells in you. I know that there's a devil in this world who eats you for lunch. I know that. I don't need to know much else about you. To know that warnings, you best sit up and read them carefully, pal. They're about you, too. So ain't nobody here escaping what this passage talks about. Listen to this. Verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But, here's a solution, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What a thought that any of us could be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And that's the amazing thing is the first thing that's going to happen to us on the way to being hardened is that we're going to be deceived. And once you get deceived, you don't even know you're being hardened anymore. And what a dangerous spot that is because you just think you're doing great. I'm fine. No, no, thanks for asking. But really, no. And you can't even accurately assess yourself. Because already deceitfulness of sin has set in, and now hardening is occurring. And every one of us is prone to that. Every one of us can be deceived. You know, when, when Adam and Eve blow it in the garden, this should intimidate all of us. You realize they weren't up until that moment having to mortify indwelling sin. You realize that? You know, when Jesus says, uh, you know, the God of this world is coming, but he's got nothing in me. You know, the only other people that could have ever said that were Adam and Eve. And they still sinned. See, when the devil comes to me, it's like, you know, you've been in a, like a mechanic shop. They've got that, that stand-up toolbox. It's got about, you know, 15 different things inside of it. Rows of things pull out. When the devil comes to me, I'm like a stand-up toolbox. He's got so many things he can just reach in and start working on. It's like pull this thing out. Ooh, a wrench, pliers. Yeah, Keith, thank you so much for providing all the tools <laughs> that I would need. It's right here. And so it should sober us that at any moment the devil decides to come and do a work and there's something for him to grasp and get a hold of in me and begin this process of deceiving. And of hardening. But yet herein is found the biblical solution to that. Exhort one another every day. Here's how God would have you and I to overcome and not be not be overcome by the deceitfulness of sin and harden. By relating and caring for one another on a regular basis. That there would be people input into my life and I would find myself engaging others. 
and giving input into theirs as well. Now, I may come back to this verse. I put another verse for you to look at in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. I just encourage you to go read that passage. And what you're going to be amazed by is the context. Don't, don't overlook this. I think people read this passage and they miss the context. The context in that passage, which I'm not going to unpack here this morning, but is the amazement that Jesus, the high priest, has given us face-to-face access to God and to the throne of God's grace. So you and I are educated that by what Christ has done, I can go straight to the Father. I can have a, a face-to-face relationship with Him. I can go to the throne of God's grace and receive what I need from the grace of God into my life. I have direct access. But then the very next passage goes on and highlights people and talks about how people are to be a part of our lives and how we're to encourage one another and strengthen one another. And, and that's that passage that, you know, pastors like to pull on their people. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some. No, wait, Lord, you just got finished telling me I got direct access to the throne of grace. Why do I need to get together with these people? But that's exactly what the Bible says. That you and I need people. And God has designed it that that's the case. So even though I can go straight to the throne of God's grace, I'm still not to avoid the fact that I am to connect with His people. And I may pull some of that out next week and take a closer look at it. Like uh, John Piper's thought on this. Come on, John, where are you? Why is this coming in in pieces? This is like drama. Here we go. God has appointed a means by which he will enable us to hold our confidence firm to the end. God has appointed this means. It is this. Develop the kind of Christian relationships in which you help each other hold fast to the promises of God and escape the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another day in and day out to stand fast and put on the whole armor of God. Children, junior hires, senior hires, college students, single people, married couples, widows, widowers. Are you a part of a cluster of Christian friends who have pledged themselves to help each other fight the fight of faith and protect each other from the subtle encroachments of sin? That's a question every one of us needs to answer. Every one of us. And next week we'll spend more time on the criticalness of that. But this is what we see. Biblical fellowship is a strategic necessity in the battle with the unholy trinity and the advancement of the gospel. Right? The unholy trinity is the world, the flesh, and the devil. And all those things operate against the gospel. It's both protective and supportive in nature. And so if you and I are not biblically fellowshipping, we are on dangerous ground. And it's just a matter of time. Lest we think the Bible speaks to no end. Now, today I want to announce an area of reformation that is, is both strategic and corrective in nature. And I want to begin, I'm going to make three quick points here. One, why we need reformation in this area. Two, what God wants to restore. Right? We need something to be aiming at in this category. And three, what we're going to do here to attempt to do what God wants as a church. One, why we need this particular form of reformation at this time. Turn to Psalm 78. Psalm 78 is a, a, 
a psalm that really recounts the history of Israel. And it's, it's one of those psalms that's not filled with a lot of good news. It's, it's recounting a lot of unfaithfulness by God's people, the effects of their unfaithfulness. But it opens up with a mandate that's placed upon the people of God. Psalm 78, verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children. But to but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them. The children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Now, this is a mandate that's familiar in Scripture, mentioned in a number of places. But there is a mandate upon every generation that walks with God to make sure the generation coming behind them is going to also walk with God. That's a mandate. There's a responsibility that God has placed upon us. And so, when you came into church this morning, that may not have been a mandate that you felt like was about you. But yet it is about you. Because you know, we don't want to stand before God as a people who lived out in our generation something that the generations that came behind us had no passion for, had no interest in, so you and I are living on the benefit of generational blessing. Somewhere along the line, somebody took the gospel to the next generation, to the next generation, until it came to ours. And so there's a mandate on the church to pull this off. And this is where it becomes strategic. where We've got to see, look, what does it mean? What does it mean to accomplish this? I love this phrase. If you have a, a prayer that you pray for your children, and you should be praying for the generation coming behind us. I, I love the way this is said. In verse 7, so that they should set their hope in God. If there is anything I would want to see accomplished in my children or in the, the life of the children of our church, is that they would set their hope in God. How many of you know that when you set your hope in the right place, your whole life gets in line? The thing that messes up our lives is when we set our hope in the wrong spot. We set it in a relationship. We set it in our appearance. We set it in people. We set it in uh, our, what we're going to accomplish in life, how somebody's going to view us. The second you set your hope there, that's what opens the door to all kinds of sin. And we begin to align our lives in that direction, everything else getting in line to accomplish that thing. And when you look at young people's lives today, there is a barrage of advertisement in every form, out of word of mouth, in the media, and whatever they breathe in, the air is full of setting your hope in something else but God. And please notice the subtlety of it and the strength of it. It's, it's both blatant in its presentation, but it's subtle as well. 
You know, when you stare at the world's presentation of life long enough, you see people living their lives, you see friends doing certain things, you see families oriented a certain way, you watch the, the, even the, the TV show that doesn't look like it's horrible, what you see that's so critical is actually what you do not see. You don't find people setting their hope in God. In my goodness, even, even on the Brady Bunch. Greg and Bobby and, you know, they're not setting their hope in God, are they? You know, we know Dad's going to have a great talk at the end that just kind of sums everything up and, and makes it all better. But God will not be a part of it. And so there is an example of the subtle, you want to solve your life's problems? Well, well maybe, maybe having the ultimate Brady dad. Set your hope in having the ultimate Brady dad who's going to come in and can explain the nuances of life. And, you know, and of course, ultimate Brady dad has the ultimate Brady child who receives dad's correction and care without any, you know, it was rough along the way. But after 60 minutes, it's all over with. And my heart is right toward you and how I view life. You know, but there's no view of God in that. There's no understanding of sin in that. And so people, even in the subtleties, are being taught, don't put your hope in God. And what you and I need to fight and fight and fight for is that we would, and for our own lives first, but that the generation behind us would learn to put its hope in God. This is a mandate that falls on the church. Let me tell you, if you and I gather thousands of people into the church and we don't pass on to the next generation an ability to put their hope in God, we have failed. And this church is a one-generation church. And what a sad thought. There's a lot of labor that goes into making a church what it's supposed to be. I sure hope it lasts more than one generation. And biblically, it's supposed to. So when we look at restoration, here's an issue in a need of restoration. And, and there is a powerful need for you and I to understand some of the forces that are operating in young people's lives. Because if we don't understand the forces that are opposing them and happening, then you and I may not grab today the fact that maybe we need to change some things that the church does in order to more effectively combat that, more effectively communicate to the next generation. But think with me for a moment here, and I'm going to give you a couple of thoughts. A book written by Dennis Rainey about families today. He says, Carl Zimmerman, a Harvard University sociologist, once studied the rise and fall of every major empire in world history. More specifically, he, yeah, that's, that's not going to help me, but thank you. <laughs> uh, I've got something permanent in me. That water won't help. More specifically, he traced what happened to the family in each of these empires. He concluded that families go through three phases. The last occurring just before each major empire fell apart. In his book, Family and Civilization, he lists these characteristics of families in their final phase. First, marriage lost its sacredness and alternative forms of marriage were advocated. Listen carefully to these because there's a punchline when I get to the end. Feminist movements flourished. Parenting became more difficult. Adultery was celebrated, not punished. Sexual perversions abounded, including bestiality, but especially incest and homosexuality. America is certainly one of the great empires of history. Do Zimmerman's observations on the family send a shiver down your back as they do mine? 
Does your concern become more urgent when you realize that this book was published in 1947? A little sobering, isn't it? And he goes through and cites statistic after statistic, which we touched on a little bit of this last week. Families headed by single fathers are now the fastest growing kind of family. A researcher reported that 94% of the sex shown on TV is among people who are not married to each other. I mean, this, this, is, this is like an IV plugged into somebody. When you just begin to just see something, that's the way life is. That's the way life is. That's the way life is. The more you get that, the weirder this book becomes to you. And if you're a young person who has just been taking in IVs all their life and not getting enough of the gospel and enough of the truth in their life, the day you try to get serious about this, it's like whacked out weird. Why would I want to do that? That's not, the, that's not even normal. Everybody would think I'm from another planet. You've got a big uphill battle to fight in young people's lives to get the gospel into their hearts and lives. In 1998, a U.S. Census Bureau study found that a, major, a majority of firstborn children are born out of wedlock. As an adult stage in the life course, marriage is shrinking. Americans are living longer, marrying later, exiting marriage more quickly, and choosing to live together before marriage, after marriage, in between marriages, and as an alternative to marriage. And listen, don't think this stuff's not getting into us. This is secondhand smoke stuff. Every one of our children is breathing this stuff in. The next generation coming behind us. Now, I said this when we started this series. I'm concerned that just what I've looked at, been around, and this would be true of all of us, what we call the church is so far radically removed from what the Bible calls the church that I'm not even sure that we know where, where exactly to aim anymore. I think, you know, the church is way over here in, in, in many practices, and I'm thinking we're going to aim about right here and think that's restoration. But I'd rather at least come close to what God had in mind. Because I think what God had in mind was radically different. But we're around these ideas. They get in us. And we start thinking, uh, you know, holiness is, is just if you pray every once in a while. That's, that's, that's holy. Wow. But it doesn't begin to touch what the Bible says. I could go on with a lot of other statistics that he has here. But what, the point I want to make in strategically us addressing this this morning is that there is a great deal of need for us to strengthen the ministry that takes place to the next generation, primarily the ministry that takes place through families. Dennis Rainey, who wrote this book, said, The ministry I direct has conducted a number of surveys of adults in local churches. We have found that of the top ten personal needs for which respondents say they want help from the church, six involve marriage and family issues. The hunger for help is there. Now, specifically what we're about to do and ask you to cooperate with and embrace has a great deal to do with reaching our youth, reaching the generation behind us. And let me give you some reports. And this is, you know, if you don't pay attention to this kind of stuff, I'm going to put up a bunch of quotes just to kind of get you on board with looking at the world in categories that maybe you don't really listen for, which is understandable. We don't listen for everything under the sun. But here's a couple of thoughts. Where am I at here? In a recent research project, a group of 75 suburban teenagers were given beepers and belts and asked to write down exactly what they were doing and feeling at the exact moment the beeper sounded. After several months of observation, the results gave a frighteningly accurate portrait of how teens spend their time. The single most disturbing conclusion, as recorded in the book, Being Adolescent, was the unprecedented unavailability of adults in teenagers' lives. 
The study revealed that teenagers spend less than 7% of their waking hours with any adults while spending approximately half of their time with peers. If you want to understand why young people struggle with value system issues, that would be an obvious issue. A couple of thoughts. I don't know why this thing's coming up in pieces, but just put up with me. Adolescence has become a waiting period of enforced leisure with few responsibilities and little or no meaningful contact with adults. Gordon MacDonald in his book, The Effective Father, said, More often than not, children are learning major value systems in life from the horizontal peer culture. The vertical structure is not there in adequate increments of time or intensity to do the job. And this, this would be a responsibility of the church to make sure that we're not just floating along the river of our culture and to do something different as, as it demands. Time Magazine article, Claudia Wallace says, Child therapist Ron Taffel, author of The Second Family. The Second Family. Now listen to what The Second Family is about to be. How Adolescent Power is Challenging the American Family. In Taffel's view, the adult establishment, remember that word, the establishment, those of you who are older? Everybody rebelled against the establishment, right? Well, listen to this thought. In Taffel's view, the adult establishment has become too weak and weary to inspire rebellion. This is Time Magazine pointing this out. Getting thongs or tattoos or body piercings, he argues, is actually a statement to other kids that they are part of this very, very intense, powerful second family of peer group and pop culture that is shaping kids' wants, needs, and feelings. This phenomenon is gripping kids at ever earlier ages. Peer pressure is at its most intense between fifth and eighth grade, but it can begin in first and second grade. Adult forces, parents, schools, churches, find it hard to compete with pop culture. Listen, listen, it is hard. And what we're going to suggest as a remedy to overcome this is not easy. It is going to be a challenge. But we can either surrender or we can fight. And when I look at the church, I find the church to be a fighter. I find the purpose of God to accomplish when it really is the purpose of God is never met with ease. If Christianity has become easy to you, there's a different thing about being in rest with God and finding things to be easy. If Christianity has become easy to you, you must be dead and in heaven. In this world, you will have what? Tribulation. It's going to have difficulty associated with it. And that difficulty is not always frontier evangelism. You might be harpooned, shot, mistreated. It may just be, I have to break with my culture and the way in which I have appropriated my life to relate to the next generation. I may have to break with what I've grown to be comfortable with in my land of adults and build relationships with the next generation coming behind me intentionally. Lest there are no players in their life who shape and influence who they're going to be. One last thought here, which was very... Helpful and insightful from Mark DeVries again. It might be hoped that churches would stand in the gap and provide an environment in which children and youth could dialogue and collaborate with adults. But, sadly enough, for many teenagers active in church, this is the one place where they may just be the most segregated from the world of adults. 
And the more successful a youth program, often the more exacerbated the isolation becomes. Most successful youth ministries have their own youth Sunday school, youth missions, youth small groups, youth evangelism teams, youth worship, youth budget, youth interns, youth committees, youth offering, youth Bible studies, youth elders. That's an interesting word. Youth centers. Youth choir, youth room, youth discipleship programs, youth conferences, youth retreats, youth fundraisers, and youth ministers. Even when families do worship together, almost inevitably, the parents sit together, the children are shuffled off to children's church, and the youth sit in the balcony. Let's check in. Of course, in this service, a lot of them aren't awake yet. <laughs> The church, the one place where teenagers could logically be linked to the world of adults, has missed the opportunity. See, church needs strategic and I believe also corrective restoration. Lest this continue to be true in our generation of what we have built as a church that looks like something that was modeled for us by modern approaches to ministry rather than biblical approaches to ministry. We want to be found guilty of putting the accent where God put the accent in the word and not just putting it upon what we've seen other people do that seems to have worked. Now, what does God want to restore? Turn to Luke chapter one with me for a moment. Here's what God, I believe, wants to restore. And it's interesting that it's even spoken in a restoration context of what God would do. Luke chapter 1, speaking of the ministry of John the Baptist, is the context here in his work in ministry. In verse 16, it says, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him, speaking of Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Now, those are, that's, a, that's two very big issues right there. And why is that? To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, now, that would be a goal that all of us share. We want to be a people prepared. We want When the Lord decides to move, we want to be on board with it. I think everybody in here would say that. I want to be a part of what God's doing. I want to live my life knowing that I was a part of what God was doing. Well, interesting, God's means of preparing for that day is to do two things in this passage. And I believe the Bible teaches more than just these two things, but these two things are highlighted in this passage. One is to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And I almost think, feel like you're looking at both sides of the equation here. There's a turning of the hearts of the fathers to the children. There's a turning of the hearts of the disobedient, which would classify much of youth culture today, to the, to the wisdom of the just, to being instructed, to benefiting from those who have gone before them in life. So when God goes to restore and make a move amongst his people, these are critical components. They're not ancillary issues. It becomes a critical matter as to whether parents are living with their heart toward their children in significant ways, in difficult ways. And this is where perhaps we live in a culture that's so blinded us that, that we don't even know where we're aiming right. 
You know, we think if we could just leave a Hallmark card for the kids before the school day begins and say, hey, hope you have a great day, that we're connecting with them. We're not connecting with them if that's what we're doing. There needs to be a radical shift in what we as a generation who are raising children view as what it means to impart into their lives effectively. So radical that I don't even think that I know what it's supposed to even look like. But I know it's not supposed like what it looks like today. I know it's not supposed to be this. I'm not quite sure exactly how pure this is, but you know what? We're going to move in that direction so that we're answering the mandate as a church. How do we reach the next generation coming behind us? You know, I'm sparing you of lots and lots of material here. But if I were to take and let you analyze what modern youth ministry has left the church with. I don't necessarily fault the youth ministry. We're not looking to do away with youth ministry here. But we are looking to do what this Bible says right here, that the hearts of the fathers would return to their children. And I don't believe that's just supposed to be fathers. I believe it's supposed to be parents primarily. But I think it needs to be an entire generation that sees that we all have a stake in who is coming behind us. If, and let's be genuine and honest here. Do we really love the gospel mission of the church? Do we really love it? Or do we love what it does for us? Cruise ship or battleship? You see, if we love the mission that we're on, we find that it was worthy of us laying down our lives. Then when you and I are dead and gone, we still love that mission. And we still want it to continue. We still want the glory of God to be working in lives when you and I are no longer part of the scene. So what we don't do is we don't design the church for us. We don't make the church so that it's got perfect parking, perfect timing, perfect relationships that serve me. If God calls me to be a part of a church where it ain't no parking at all, I know we're wrestling through trying to figure out how to park everybody here. And, and you know, listen, this, this, this uh, it's just irritating. I mean, I read too much stuff, but it's just irritating. When what you're taught as a pastor is the key to church growth begins with a parking lot. I'm serious. You do any kind of research. You want your church to grow? Parking's the key. And then after parking is programs for all kinds of ages. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't find that in here. I don't find parking in here. Show me. Somebody help me find parking in here. But, you know, you and I have grown up in this stuff. So we start thinking parking's critical. Brother, you can't grow that church without parking. Come on, man. Don't you pray? Don't you hear from God? People need a space for their car. But when we buy into all that stuff, what we also buy into is abdicating what God had in mind. And I think the church, in a huge way, is abdicating things that are critical. Now, I, I know... Uh, this whole series, if you really put it on and wear it, it ain't a popular series. This whole restoration thing, it means stop doing what you're doing, start doing it a different way. How many of us love those kind of messages? <laughs> well, that's what this is. It's a call for you and I to figure out what is more biblical than what we're doing right now. And ten years from now, a year from now, we're going to have to ask that question again. What is more biblical than what we're doing right now? Simper reformanda. You know, and, and what the great thing about being restored is, and if you watch church history, you see exactly this happening. When you, st- when you take a step 
in towards restoration, it becomes clearer how to take the next one and clearer how to take the next one and clearer how to take the next one. If you read the reformers, the earlier guys, Martin Luther, John Calvin, you know, they had a lot of great stuff and they had some goofy stuff, too. But they saw clearly enough to have the church take a giant leap is what they did. And enough so for a bunch of guys who came after them to figure out, ah, well, now that we see more clearly, wow, this needs to change, too. And then once they did that, they realized, wow, wow, we're doing this wrong. This needs to change now, too. And the more we walk in restoration, the more clear it becomes. But what we can't do, church, what we can't do, what we're not going to do as a church here is try and figure out what's working out there. And pattern it to work here. Let's figure out what God had in mind. Because today I think there's churches who have created programs to reach children and they haven't read Luke chapter 1. That God's interested in restoring the hearts of fathers. You know what? Let me tell you something. There's a bunch of fathers here. There's a bunch of parents here. You know what's easier? Let me just tell you what's easier in this category. What's easier is to get a youth pastor. One guy. Get a youth pastor. Make sure he's going in the right direction. Just make sure. Visit, meet, put him on staff and let him walk in the right direction and let him lead young people. It's easier to get one guy to go in the right direction than it is to get hundreds of people to go in the right direction. So can you see why people create youth ministries and almost de-emphasize parental ministry, generational ministry? Because it's hard to get everybody on board. If you can just get one or two on board, hey, let's get moving. And kids will benefit from that to some degree. But because it seems to work, doesn't really mean that it's working to accomplish what God had in mind. Let me just make this quick note about being a restorative church versus being a pragmatic church. It's a thought from Charisma magazine. Mega churches in America may be growing numerically, but the pastors of the big congregations often fall short of growing people into Christ-like life. George Barna gave this assessment to a gathering this week of 40 megachurch pastors. We have the ability to parrot back a lot of verses and stories and characters, said Barna. But in terms of how to lead up to a person's transformation, that's where we're really struggling. To see that people are becoming more like Christ. Some of the megachurches which have an average attendance of 3,000 per week don't have leadership in changing people's lives. Listen, if there's anything for us, by God's grace, that we're aiming at, it has to do with transformation and not with numerical growth. And so our passion is more to see what effect is the gospel having upon those that God has given us to care for. Not, how can we get more people? Now, I believe that anything that's healthy grows in a healthy fashion. So if God creates a healthy place here where there's growth taking place in transformed lives, then then he will add to our numbers as he sees fit. But once you reverse that and you say we're after numbers, then you start figuring out parking lots, programs. uh, Boy, those ideas really don't work. People don't go for them. You know, they're just kind of not into that. Let's do this instead. People go for this today. Ten years from now, they'll go for something else, and we'll just kind of try to slide over, adjust. We'll look for some scripture verses that sound like that, and we'll promote it. That's not what we're after. We're looking to be a church who wants to be restored to what this has to say. And there's not a better idea out there, guys. There's not a better idea out there if we're really looking for people to become disciples who will follow Christ with a passion and put their hope in God. And that is what we're after. Now, 
Let me get to the practicals here. If I could get the ushers to go ahead and come and distribute. Uh, that's, that's offering distribution music. Um, <clears throat> I need those, those handouts to be distributed. So there was a chunk of them, ushers, that were left with you guys in the back. Why is everybody acting like no one knows what an usher is? <laughs> those official guys with the official clothing on. That's right. You can amen the ushers. They do a good job. Here's what we're going to attempt to do, and I'll try and cover this quickly so we don't get too far in the school of the word hour. We will attempt to accomplish this by intentionally building a biblical bridge from the parental world into the teen world. Secondly, by intentionally providing a relational framework that serves both youth and parents with timely and much-needed reinforcements during this critical period of family life. So to do this, we felt one of the things that we needed to reform was the way in which we're doing covenant group ministry. The goal in this primarily is to have a greater integration of generations to minister to one another. And so what we're going to ask for you to to pray and walk with us in is that we're going to bring some adjustments to the existing groups. And we have prayed for quite a while about this. We've asked the Lord to help us to bring the minimum amount of disruption to the covenant group ministry uh, because we believe that God has used it wonderfully and it is a vital part of what we do. And our desire is not to uh, be frivolous in disrupting what God has been creating in our midst. And, you know, our teaching and next week, I really will teach more on this, on the issue of how to build relationships that matter in your life spiritually. Uh, we don't we don't do groups to where you're having to redo that every year. It's like you meet, we divide the group up, divide, conquer, multiply, blah, blah, blah. We, we really haven't sought to do that. We've sought to give longevity to relationships so that individuals would build friendships with one another in such a way that, that they genuinely would open up their lives and be real and invite others into that same dynamic. Uh, so we don't frivolously just decide, okay, let's disrupt that. But for the sake of accomplishing ministry between parents and their youth, between this generation and the next one, we feel that we need to create a better context for that to take place. And there's many reasons that will go into it. I will share some of that in more detail with the parents uh, and, and what they are being asked to do. But for you, uh, there are two sets of groups that you will see here. On the front page, there is regular covenant groups. And those would be 12 regular covenant groups that currently exist. On the back, you will see YAP covenant groups. Uh, YAP is youth and parents covenant groups. And there will be four of those. Uh, from the front page, here's the upcoming moves spelled out there. If you have youth age children, and we're going to include fifth grade in the youth age children, but actually youth is from sixth grade to twelfth grade at this point. Uh, but we're going to include fifth grade because these moves actually won't occur until January. And what we don't want to do is have a whole other set of moves in September when New Year starts. So if you have children that begin in the fifth grade and are in anywhere from fifth grade to 11th grade, we're asking you to move from your existing group into one of the YAP covenant groups that are listed below. If you have no children or children outside of the fifth to 11th grade range, then you stay in your existing covenant group. We're not wanting to turn the whole thing upside down. So if you're in a group and this doesn't apply to you to move into a group that would have ministry to you and your family at that particular age of your children, then you stay right where you are 
in your group. And some groups aren't going to be touched by this at all. Um, most of them will have one or two people touched in it. Little sign, open house. Uh, these are groups that will have room in them to receive additional people. And we're going to be announcing more about the open house process next month. Again, these are moves that aren't going to occur until January. So please make sure you're not trying to figure out, okay, I'm going to do this by next week. No, you meet with your covenant groups as planned through the end of the year. And, and this will be some things that, that you guys will be talking about this week. Put a little note at the bottom. We are aware that there may be extenuating circumstances that may not allow you to pursue the changes we are asking for. Please communicate these to your existing covenant group leader, and, and we will address them on a case-by-case -case basis. So, you know, sometimes one size does not fit all, and there are extenuating seasons or activities that are going to prohibit you from being able to embrace this exactly the way we've laid it out. Uh, we do have some flexibility in that. We're not going to be rigid and shoot people who don't get on board the right way. The other side, the YAP covenant groups. If you are currently in one of these YAP covenant groups, you have children in the range of 5th to 12th grade, then you stay in your existing group. So you don't make a move. You just stay right where you are. More people will be coming to you. If you are currently in one of these YAP covenant groups and you do not have children in this range, then we are asking you to move from your existing group into one of the above groups that are listed as an open house. Um, I won't cover the schedule elements. You can read that on your own. I'll cover some of that with parents, but it'll explain a little bit to you why we felt the need to do this. Uh, quite honestly, our passion for covenant group ministry and those fellowship dynamics is something we don't want to compromise, but yet families, I think, find it difficult to do what we're asking them to do to build into their, their children's lives and at the same time build into a large segment of adults as well. So we've tried to simplify that, simplify their schedule. You know, if, you're, if you don't have children in this age range, you don't realize this, but quite often we're asking parents to come be a part of a Wednesday night youth service because we want them to hear what God's ministering. We want them to be with their kids to receive from God. We don't do that every Wednesday, but it's when we do have those meetings, quite often parents are asked to come. And then they also, in that same week, may have a covenant group meeting on Thursday night and then maybe an activity. And so it's become a bit difficult for them to walk with all of this and build enough relationships with other adults, plus minister to their kids, plus attend all these meetings. So we're trying to, to help these families, and we're also trying to create a context where the issues that are critical for them which have to do with raising youth-aged children right now, can be addressed more frequently with greater thoroughness, and there can be a greater support network of people who are walking in those same issues right now to encourage and support one another as they walk through that. So that schedule there will explain that to you about how those meet. One other thing that's a part of this is pivot changes. The singles covenant group uh, that meets right now that is a pivot covenant group. Uh, similar principle here would apply that our desire in forming the pivot was that it would be an effective outreach to a generation between 18 and 30 that, that we felt the Lord wanted us to go after. We want the pivot ministry to be about the introduction to discipleship, not about the entire process of discipleship. We don't think it serves the 18 to 30 year old the best to be in a group where they're only walking with people who are in like age and like experience uh, to not being able to connect with people who 
are from the next generation who have walked with Christ more years and uh, have something from life experience to impart. So what we want to do is put a greater emphasis upon the pivot ministry being more outreach, more in gathering for the sake of getting folks to take their first few steps in Christianity. And at that point, the church needs to do a better job of serving that group. And so we're going to integrate those groups as covenant groups into the other existing covenant groups. So if you're between 18 and 30 and you've been a part of the, the pivot singles covenant group, we're going to ask you to disperse into the open house groups as well. And, and again, we'll inform you some more on that uh, in the future. And I know Matt's already begun to talk to the pivot guys about some of those changes that are upcoming. All right. I know I'm running out of time here. Um, I want to make sure we just grasp two things today. Obviously, we need to grasp the practical, physical changes that we're asking everybody to embrace. But first, we need to grasp the heart of why it's important. Strategic reformation and corrective reformation needs to take place. And I think in this category, we're trying to accomplish both. We're trying to become more biblical and emphasizing how we're going to reach the next generation. And we're also trying to be more strategic in being more effective, helping those who are walking in a barrage of the world's activity to destroy the next generation. We're going to take aim upon the same things that the enemy is taking aim upon and try and strengthen that. Um, and that's not just a leadership issue. That's an everybody issue. All of us have a stake in the next generation who's going to take from us the baton of Christianity and run with it and and, and it would be our opinion that too often churches today fumble the exchange. That what's taking place when we get to handing the baton to the next generation is uh, questioning about what the baton is, disinterest, fumbling, dropping it, uh, walking with it rather than sprinting with it. We need to do a better job in getting the generation that comes behind us up to speed quicker and earlier in their life rather than having to have years of recovery that takes place and then when they get to be 30 or 40 they are they clue back in that ah i remember some of the things when i was younger that i learned and uh, i need to get my life right get my head screwed on there, there's years that we need to capture so the gospel can go with speed into the next generation and so this is what we're about and i know probably raised many questions, and that's why all of your covenant group leaders are, are ready to answer every question that you have. And they will do an incredible job of doing that. <laughs> um, let's stand up together. Lord, when, when we are honest with you, we, most of us, have to admit we, we don't really care for change. But Lord, change is necessary in a fallen world, lest we stay on course in the wrong 